0: Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life, in partnership with our friends from Biblioguides.
1: Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft here with Sarah Masarik, and we are with Tanya Arnold and Sarah Kim again today. We are here for Our
0: Reading Life, which is, as we say every month, one of our absolute most favorite things to do. And I've been sick for six weeks. I've had three different things over the last six weeks. It's been a little crazy. Um, But I am getting over that. So my voice is definitely going to be affected today as it was in a recent episode we just did. So Tanya and Sarah, we're so happy to have you back for this month's Our Reading Life. I'm going to go last today. Because I've been sick, the only good thing that has come out of being sick is that I have read a ton. And I'm only going to tell you about a couple of the books I've read, but I've had a very hard time narrowing down my list this month of what I wanted to talk about because I really loved a lot of stuff that I was reading. So I'm excited to talk about it. Tanya, um, any scandalous revelations this month?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No.
3: (laughs)
0: Nothing scandalous,
3: really.
2: I'm still reading Little Men and I adore it. Yay. I just... It's so lovely. But I'm just doing a slow read of that. So I haven't finished it. But when I do, we'll be chatting about that more. I did a, quite a bit of reading this uh, last month as well. And as I'm looking at the books that I've read and the ones I want to chat about, I realized that they were nothing that I picked, chose of myself. Wow. Rather, they were all informed by Plumfield Moms. yeah, <laughs> What? Weird. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was like, Huh. So I, I do want to hit on a couple of things, but just lightly, because yes. I'm going to come back later. So one idea that I want to come back maybe next month for mm-hmm. is to talk about my love of time travel books. Oh,
0: oh, oh, sorry. Because that's what I'm reading it's right you. now that is I'm that so excited you're about. I, yes, I just <laughs> and love- I didn't know you were reading time travel books too. How fun. <laughs> well, you, you
2: you'll be happy when I share with you, because I got the audible of sun, slower, sun, faster. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say that really slowly I know, I- for our members because <laughs> you kept saying it to me and I kept saying, what is the title of the book? <laughs> so it's sun, slower, mm-hmm. sun, as in like the, you know, sun, the sun in the sky, the sky mm-hmm. faster. Mm-hmm. So I got the audible of that and I've been slow listening to it. And it was... At one point, reprinted by Bethlehem Books, right. and the Audible was done by them, yes. and it's just fascinating. And it's basically these children, and they go back in time to in different times, yes, throughout history in England. So it's English history, and they go back further each time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning so much, and it's such an engaging story. I'm not done, but what it made me think of is I thought, well, why do I love time travel, especially historical mm-hmm. time travel books, so much? And when did that first happen and I don't know because we always talk about Disney why is Disney (laughs) a thing I don't know but did you guys do you guys remember I know this was being shown when I was young but it was probably uh, made in like the 60s but it was a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and it was a kind of a
0: remake Jack is reading that right now because he loves Mark Twain so much
2: okay so Disney made a movie of it, and I remember loving it Aww. as a kid. And I, I can't recall if I've actually read the Mark Twain version or not. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some research as to what, like when did time travel first kind of become a thing? And in that particular story, it's not that he time travels, but I think in Mark Twain's version, I think he gets like a knock on the head. Yeah, and
0: a magically and so, appears then, there.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's one of the earliest ones where you have a storyline like that. And anyway, so I love them. I think we should talk more about them. I just think they're so fun <laughs> when you have a modern person going into another time period. So I'm going to come back next month, hopefully, and finish up telling you how much
0: I love that story. Oh, because but when, then, when I'm talking, we're going to talk about time travel today. Are we going to come back oh, to yeah, it? Oh, yeah, we are. Okay, so yeah. this is going to be a theme for us for a while. <laughs> so
2: really exciting. And that one is on BiblioGuides. Great. Because you added we it. want people to know about yeah. that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because it's a book that you guys – have you reviewed it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Then I was adding a book to BiblioGuides called The School That Escaped the
0: Nazis. Mm. Diane, didn't you
2: review that one yes. too? She yeah. did. <laughs> yes. And I needed to get some more information on it, and my library had it, my local library. So I got it, and I was you know, working on adding the data, and I thought, well, I'll just start the first page and just <laughs> – i <laughs> just going to see what this is about.
0: Famous last words and of any reader. I
2: know. <laughs> I think I started on a Saturday and I finished it so Sunday night. I think I went to church and read the rest of the day and I tried to eat some That's food. heavy. <laughs> and I loved it. It is heavy, but I think this is a great book for moms. Mm. And the reason why is that the educational philosophy in it so captured me. Mm. And I read this just a few weeks before we were getting ready to start school And I was thinking a lot about school Mm. and what it was going to look like and adjustments that I was feeling like I needed to make, but just having the faith to step into those changes, which is a lot less structured than, I mean, I just love (laughs) structure. So, um, but I have a child that really needs a lot more freedom and autonomy and Mm. it needs to be less rigid. And I just like checklists and like, here's what we're going to do and get it done. So what I loved about this story is there's there's this woman and she – basically she decided to be an educator, but in the early 20th century, so in the early 1900s, she came to the U.S. and she got some education. She got a bachelor's in education and she was working towards – and I think she got a master's and then was working towards a PhD, something like that. Mm. And then World War One broke out mm. and because she was German – she was German and Jewish mm. – There was a lot of especially Mm -hmm. anti-German sentiment in the U.S., and she wasn't able to finish that Ph.D. She ends up going back to Germany, and her family talks about starting a school. And because of the connections they have and because of the skills of the family, they they have land. Her husband – or not her husband, her brother builds a school. And kind of in Europe, throughout Europe, and like in England and in the U.S., there's been a lot of new ideas about education. And she was quite progressive at the time. She reminds me a little bit of Charlotte Mason, honestly, sure. and it talks a lot about some of the ideas she was reading. and so or Louisa May Alcott. She, or Louisa May Alcott. Yes. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of it's tied into that. So if you like Charlotte Mason, mm-hmm. if you've um, maybe even I think Maria Montessori, mm-hmm. just some of those ideas that were happening, I think you would really, really love her story. Mm-hmm. So what happens is she reads Mein Kampf. Oh. And this isn't about 1931. So she basically through World War One, she eventually makes it back to Germany and she's helping rebuild. She's doing all kinds of service and humanitarian work. The family recognizes that we, sh- we should start this school for Jewish children. And then she reads Mein Kampf. Mm. And she completely sees the writing on the wall yeah. and recognizes she c- will not be able to have the school with the philosophy that she sees if Hitler comes to power mm. and she's And just as things are swirling in Germany, Mm -hmm. she's becoming unsettled. And so I think she was kind of a visionary, too, because I think a lot of people kept trying to say this is going to die down. This is going to settle down. Hitler's crazy. Who would elect him? No one's listening to him. Who would elect him? Right. Mm -hmm. So what happens, and she had 70 children at the school Mm -hmm. at this point and some teachers. So basically what happens is that she is able to go to England, do fundraising, find land, Find a building and basically sneak those children out of Germany to England. With the parents' permission, right? This is like a boarding school. Right, right, right. She wasn't
0: kidnapping <laughs> <just> thinking, them.
2: <laughs> she wasn't kidnapping them, but, but she also had to be really quiet and on the down low to like tell the parents what she was doing and, and have them say, Yes, this is this is wise yeah. and why, at the same time not having anyone report her right. as to what she was doing. Right. So she gets over there and the school that she builds it's all about the arts it's music mm. and art and poetry and the children just sit around and have discussions and they don't have to participate in anything they don't want to participate in and then as as things are converging like she's always on the verge of bankruptcy constantly yeah. because we're in the middle of world war 2 is starting yeah. right like it's it's coming to fruition and as more and more children start coming to her they are coming with higher and higher levels of trauma that yeah. they've been through. Yeah. And so it's showing how the arts and her philosophy not only educated these children but um healed them. Healed them. Mm. So what you do see on one side is here's a little bit of the philosophy and here's what she's doing over in England and then it goes to specific children mm-hmm. and tells you their stories and their hard stories. Yeah. They are like I cried. Mm. And you're seeing World War II from such a different perspective. Again, it's another viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And you're having children all over Europe, Jewish children all over Europe that are coming to her. And not. she got to England, but she also wanted to have British children coming because she needed funding. Because the parents stopped being able to pay. And the reason the parents could no longer pay was because the Germans were stealing the jobs and destroying the work that the Jewish people had. All their property and their businesses and and everything. Their property, their businesses, they were disappearing. And so she needed funding. So she did have more than just Jewish children that ended up coming and being at that school. And she tried to get certified by some British organization to be an official school. And they didn't like her curriculum or what she was doing. They came in and did inspections and... They just didn't see how you were going to have a great education come out of her methodology. So basically, at the end of this story, though, and this is what I loved, is it shows you what happened to a lot of these children. Because I always wondered this. Sarah, uh, Kim, and I have talked about this. I'm curious as to what happened to the children that went through Charlotte Mason School, through Ambleside. Yeah. Where are their stories? And I'm sure they're out there. I just don't personally know of them. And one thing that Sarah had said to me one time was, well, Tanya, a lot of them probably ended up in World War One and didn't survive.
0: Oh. And I right.
2: thought, yeah. you know, made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> but in this one, you have these children who did survive, who were part of her school. And a lot of them went on to do amazing, magnificent things, even with the trauma that they had suffered. So some of them went to become famous painters, musicians, heads of state, political leaders, scientists, um, professors at, at various educational institutions. It was no shoddy education. And this was from kids who no longer had families who were alone in the world. Yeah. So I just, I felt like this was a like, while it was hard and while it's a World War II book, it's also a great book for moms to just think about education and think about your specific child because she would also bring specific children in and just talk to them and ask them how they were. And at that time, they had no idea of how to handle trauma. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, just don't talk about it. Right. But she would still do what she could to help with their mental health. And
0: I just it was beautiful. And that happens in little men. You I don't know how far you are into little men yet, but they're you know the, the first boys that little men starts with, mm-hmm. they're all from reasonably well adjusted pain families. But there are some urchins that she picks up, and there's a lot of counseling and heart tending that happens with them. And then there are, there's grief that happens because there's a father who dies. And so it's interesting to see similar methodologies here, similar um, kind of vantage point here, different settings. Be interesting to compare those two books and compare the educational philosophies of both of those books.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This one just gave me confirmation. Mm-hmm. It was such a strange experience mm. of some directions that I was thinking of taking this year. Yay. And of having it be a lot more self-led. Mm-hmm. and um, More natural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I read it and just was so inspired by her. And it was interesting because the woman who wrote the book... I don't recall where she said there's a museum or somewhere where they have 40 boxes of books and information and papers about this woman's story and about the school. And she was maybe one of the first people to really look through them and go through them and pull this story together. So this is a story that hasn't been told. And then a lot of the children she was still able to interview. They're elderly, of course, but they talk about how that time in their lives they had a sense of stability and a sense of home and a sense of belonging mm. that held them through the rest of their lives when they felt so kind of lost. Yeah. And they, many of them wanted to save the school, ended up closing in like 1948. And maybe it was that school was meant for a time and place sure. Sure. that was really specific. But they always wondered why we didn't continue to educate children in that same way. Mm-hmm. Why aren't schools
0: more like that? And you know what's interesting? Piggybacking on that idea or following that idea through, Greg and I have been talking a lot about how active the kids are in our lending library. My kids, my own children. And how one of the funny things is that we make stacks of books that we're either repairing or covering or cataloging. And how books go missing because Jack just keeps squirreling them away and sitting down and reading them, et cetera. And the books that Jack is most drawn towards are World War I and World War II books. And the vast majority of my patrons above a certain age, same thing. Once they get to about 10 years old, my patrons are fixated on World War I and World War II. And we were talking about how this is so important that these books exist and that they are read. Because we live in a culture that no longer remembers or cares to remember World War I or World War II, no longer cares to remember the sacrifices that were made in order to protect the way of life and freedoms that we enjoy today, and that short of living through those kinds of wars, the best thing we can do for our children right now is to remind them of those wars by letting them read, whether it's Jennifer Nielsen's historical fiction or it's the landmark books or it's a whole host of other World War I and World War II books where our kids can get into that. And like you're saying, the kind of school that Mason advocated for, Montessori advocated for, Elcott, because remember, Elcott's Little Men is informed by her father's school, which was a failed school experiment, but she still believed in the educational philosophy, or a school like the one you're talking about. These kinds of schools, they went away. And so too did our understanding of our place in human history and all the things that would protect us against more of these kinds of wars. So I find that to be an interesting correlation.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I think of is that I think most of us at about the same age, like if we go back to our junior high and high mm-hmm. school years, I think for any of us that started reading World War One or World War II books, we had the same experience that our children are having. You fall in love with it. You want to know more. And for me, the reason why is that on a really large scale, we saw the worst of what was possible in humanity. Mm-hmm. And on a really large scale, we saw the best of what was possible mm-hmm. in humanity. Yeah, the heroism. And, yeah. and the heroism. And I think just seeing such
0: mm-hmm.
2: drastic polar opposites in the same space is enrapturing. Yes. It just captures your attention and it, and it makes you question, what would I do if I was in a similar situation? Right? Sure. So I think these stories just touch our hearts the moment we start reading more about them. And that's what happened with this one. I just started reading it thinking, I'm just going to get enough information here to put some tags on it and <laughs> mark it as a Plumfield Mom's book. And then I read the whole thing and I loved it. And I wanted to just say, I think moms should consider this one, A, for a World War II book for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because while it's heavy, it's not overly graphic. Mm, it didn't like no. weigh me down and make me hurt for days. Do you feel like that, Diane? Like it was still... Easier
1: than Corey pro- Ten Boom is
0: what
2: you're right, saying.
1: Right. You, you don't get... Like one of the yes. students actually escaped from a concentration camp and ended up at that school. Mm. So you feel that, and mm-hmm. it's and it's very serious, and you you feel all of that for this child, but you don't it's not a graphic story of life in a concentration camp. right, right. right. So your heart
2: aches for the sure. the stories of these families and these children. And yet it's paired with the beauty and the hope mm-hmm. of what the school is providing Yeah, and her work towards helping get more and more children out and the kinder transports and mm-hmm. just all of these things that were happening. And so I just think for both just a mom educational book yes. <laughs> and a World War II book, it kind of fits both ni- niches and is, I thought, pretty life-giving. And will leave the mom so.
0: inspired is what you're saying.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Not spent. And also I think uh, maybe confident. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes what we need as moms is we need more confirmations to follow our hearts and our inspiration. It's great to go out and learn all the educational philosophies and then start deciding which philosophy you're going to use and how education is going to look in your home and what your home culture is going to look like. But sometimes you want to read stories that help you further identify that mm-hmm. or further clarify that for yourself or give you further confirmation of Okay, yes, I'm on the right track when you start to question. When the world makes you start to question, yes. what you want is ways to get really solid confirmation. And this was a confirmation where you saw real world examples and real world results. Yes.
0: That's that's beautiful.
2: And I loved that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I loved it. Thanks, <laughs> oh, Diane. I would not have even known about it if you guys had not read it, <laughs> reviewed it, and said, put this on Biblio Guides. <laughs> so yay! <laughs> Um, and then I'm just going to quickly, and I think we can come back to this later, but I finished the Jennifer Nielsen World War One book, Lines of Courage. Uh,
0: so did I, this month.
2: <laughs> okay, so we'll come back to that if I have all kinds of thoughts. Um, yes, and so, and then I had a bunch more that I read, but I just wanted to kind of hit on those.
0: Yay! <laughs> I'm so glad that you drew our attention to Jennifer Nielsen. Diane and I are going to do some Me stuff too. with some Jennifer Nielsen books in the future, so... We're oh, nice. I'm very impressed with her. And uh, I very much enjoyed it. It's so funny. I have Rescue on my shelf. And we were just looking at that yesterday. And Greta's like, Mom, you, you haven't read this one yet. You've, like, read all of them. <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> I got a little sidetracked this this month. I, I had a lot of a lot of things to read. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? What have you been reading? I mean, you were world traveler this month.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was traveling for about half of the month. But I actually have a couple of war stories that I was reading also. Wow. The first one it actually takes place at the beginning of the Korean War. Oh. And it's called In the Tunnel by Julie Lee. And it's her second book about the Korean War. The first one um, was called Brother's Keeper. Mm. And this one, felt like Gary Schmidt, has a little bit of overlap mm. with a couple of the characters. They knew each other. Um, oh, wow! And reconnect again. So both books are pretty heartbreaking stories. Mm. They're challenging to read. I think if you have a very sensitive child, they might be a bit much um, because she does explain like what's happening to these children. In both stories, they're escaping from North Korea at the beginning of the war. Mm. They're Christians who um, you know can no longer practice their faith. Right. they see what's happening and when the war happens it's basically their only opportunity to leave they realize that if they don't leave now they're they're never going to be able to leave and uh, with the chaos of the war a lot of them were able to to flee and so in the first book brother's keeper um it's a family and they start they decide to walk south and the parents get separated from two of the siblings and so the two siblings have to walk by themselves oh. and they're going These are all, they're all going very far to the very um, southern part of the peninsula in Busan. Um, That's where a lot of them end up because it's furthest from the war and it's the safest there. And so it's a story of of those two children and what they go through and what they witness Mm. um, from other people just doing incredibly desperate things Mm. to try to um, escape and to try to survive. In this story, the family, uh, the eldest brother, it's about him and it's told in an interesting way because it's when he's 16 and has decided to join up with the South Korean army in order to try to find his father who um, was left in North Korea. And so it flashes back to him who has then like fallen into this tunnel, enemy tunnel, and is trapped in the tunnel. So it's basically his experience trapped and and dying really because he has no food, he has no water, it takes place over a course of, you know, a few days. And then half the book is the story of what happened before then where we find out why his father was left behind and how the um, mother and the other two children managed to get south to Busan and all that they went through. And then, like I said, his guilt, like his decision to go back and join the army because he feels so guilty. He feels partly responsible for um, what happened with his father. And um, it's a really moving story. I'm really glad glad I read both of them um, because I think the Korean War is often overlooked and there's not a lot of stories about what happened there i think they're starting to be told now um i think now the children of the yes. parents who went through that are starting to tell the stories but the parents themselves could not right. and um you know like my husband's mother um escaped she was one of those that escaped from north korea to busan when she was only two and i think they went on a boat but there, there are a lot of stories um there was actually this was in the author's note There were over 10 million immediate family members who were separated during the Korean War, never, never able to be reunited. Oh, my gosh. So a lot of them like started new families or, you know, they just.
0: What else would you do?
3: Yeah. Sarah, it's so sad. I
2: love that you're sharing this because I have a couple of thoughts and a couple of questions for you, too. Because yeah. this happens right after World War II, and it kind of is on, it happens kind of because of what happens at the end of World War II, right? And I think a lot of us
0: mm-hmm. see
2: these wars as being these like this war, and then like they're it's disparate. How, what's the word I want for that? They're not connected together. Mm-hmm. We kind of see them as these like individual events mm-hmm. this war, this war, this war, this war, and we don't necessarily have this flow that makes sense. And when you started inviting me to watch Korean dramas, mm-hmm. I started falling in love with them, right? And I watched one called Chicago Typewriter. And I didn't understand that part of Asian history, especially Korean history. So what I didn't understand and learned through that show, and that's kind of piqued my curiosity. So I'm interested in these stories that can help us kind of connect these Mm -hmm. world histories together, together in a better way. So my understanding is that Japan invaded Korea in about 1910, and Korea was under Japanese control from 1910 until 1945 when the u s and the Allies beat both Germany and Japan and so then Japan lost its grip left Japan lost its grip in mm-hmm. 1945 and then the Korean War started in 1950, which was an internal war.
0: Mm.
3: Is that right, Sarah? so what do you know what like, it was basically at the end of uh, World War II, um, the u s. took control of part of Korea and Russia 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 took took control Mm of the North. So similar to what happened in Europe, right? Where there was like a whole bunch of changes of, you know. Even East and West Germany or East and West Berlin. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually there was this conflict between Russia and the U.S. in Korea and, um, you know, and communism versus not communism. Mm -hmm. And then um, the war actually looked like it really looked like the US was going to defeat Russia until China stepped right, in. Right, of course. Oh, and then right. and then it looked like North Korea was going to win until there was the stalemate. Sure. And it's you know technically the war still going right. on.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly because because yeah. Korea is still ripped in half.
1: Well, wasn't it many years yeah. before it was even called the Korean War? It was the Korean conflict.
0: Uh,
2: that's
1: I think that's what they mm-hmm. were calling it while it was active. They they didn't call it a war Mm
2: mm-hmm yeah it makes my heart hurt because i just didn't understand i think sometimes we have such a strong study on europe and what happened in europe Mm -hmm. right Right. and um so sometimes we fail to understand that some the whole pacific
0: theater had a whole
2: and and it was as tragic like what happened in absolutely korea in fact what happened in korea between 1910 and 1945 Like, I watched that show and came back to Sarah and said, okay, like, it's making me want to cry. This is really bad. I didn't even realize or understand that the Japanese were trying to wipe out Korean culture, completely eliminate Korean culture. And then they must have felt like that the U.S. were going to be their saviors. And
0: then we left them
2: hanging. And then – It's a mess. And 10 million families separated to never see each other. That just makes me so This is
0: what is so remarkable. If we go back to our Medical Corps Heroes book club and our Combat Nurses book club, if we go back to the Medical Corps Heroes and we hear about the Pacific Theater and that the Japanese never obeyed the Geneva Accords. And so we hear about how the Japanese were fighting. And and I think about Diane and I have read A Town Like Alice by Neville Shute. What the Japanese did to the Australians, it was horrendous. What the Japanese were doing in the Pacific Theater was as evil as what Hitler was doing in Europe. And we tend to forget that. And I think part of why we forget it is because we dropped the bombs. So the best thing we could do in the wake of our own guilt for annihilating um, an entire region of the world with nuclear fallout was to sort of ignore it and forget it. We can't admit that we did that, cause that destruction there. So we're not going to look. We're just, we're just going to turn our backs and not look.
3: Yeah. And it's still an ongoing um, source of contention between Korea and Japan because Japan has never apologized. Oh. So what happened in Germany was that there is an acknowledgment among the German people. They don't want to forget their history. Right. They understand right. that the Nazis what the Nazis did was evil. But in Japan, they have no never admission, apologized to Korea. Uh, for you know a lot of atrocities happened to their women mm-hmm. yeah. and like tanya said they they were not allowed to speak korean so like all of like say my parents parents like our our grandparents generation mm-hmm. speak japanese fluently because they were not allowed right. to speak korean and, right yeah. and so yeah it, it's horrible and and it was completely like
1: i had no idea either for yeah. the longest time and that's why i, I keep adult, bringing so. up the house of 60 fathers yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's a really good story, mm-hmm. but he's telling a story about... This is a about a Chinese child who is suffering under the attack of the Japanese.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
1: China was occupied. Yeah, by they the were going to take well, over the
3: whole country? Actually, that leads me into <laughs> my other book. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that leads me into my other book, because the other book that I'm reading, and I'm only... Well, actually, I'm about three quarters of the way through, is called The Bomb mm. by... Theodore Taylor. So, this is an another area of the world that was taken over by Japan was the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Mm. And uh, this story is about a boy who lived on that island. Who, you know, if, when you're first introduced to him, they have Japanese soldiers living on the island, and then the U.S. comes in, defeats the soldiers, and they again, like they think, you know, the Americans are the heroes. They've saved the day. You know, they trust that the Americans are going to treat them better, and they do. And then um, there's a decision made after the war, after World War II, after the bombing in Japan, Mm -hmm. that they need to test these atomic bombs further to prevent. They say it's for peace, Mm. right, to prevent further warfare. And they decide that they're going to do this test on their island. And so I haven't gotten to the end Uh, yet. It's... But we know the bomb goes off. Um, You know, they tell the people living there that they are going to be able to go back in a few years. No, But it's and this boy who's like 12 is, you know, like he understands that that's not going to be the case and he's doing what he can to stop it. But, you know, you know, re going into the story that he's not able to. And so it's just another heartbreaking story of, again, like there are these consequences, long, long consequences to these wars.
2: I love that you're reading these stories, Sarah, because I I think it is really awesome and exciting that we do have authors that are starting to tell these stories
3: mm-hmm.
2: for children because I think the the one you were just sharing The Brother's Keeper was published in like 2020. So that means We yeah, could con- and In the
3: Tunnel was published this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know.
2: Which means yeah. you could continue a flow of history with your children if you're doing modern history mm-hmm. that you could not stop at World War II but start to show Sometimes we just forget post World War. Right. What were the ramifications? This is why I love the arc in Rowan Farm. Even, uh, absolutely. Because yes. it's a post-World War story that shows you the ramifications that were in Germany, which is they were starving and it was hard. And when you start to see how that then affects the world we're living in today, like we got where we are today because of these events. Right. Like the world dynamics are this way because of these world events. Yes.
3: And it just starts to help you connect it in your brain. I did want to say the author of The Bomb, um, was a deck officer aboard the Navy ship that landed at the atoll when they started like doing all their tests and like they had already identified this was the uh, atoll that they were going to bomb. And so they start like blowing up the coral and like measuring the depth and all this stuff. He was aboard that ship and he just could not get this story out of his head and had to write this book. So this
0: is a different author, but it's an author that we've all come to know and love and it's not Korea, it's Vietnam, but it's interesting to me because it's, it's still that flowing of history, that current of history. Gary D. Schmidt has a book called Trouble, which I wouldn't recommend to just anybody. And it's fascinating. We did review it on our site. It's fascinating because it's set in New England, but it features the families from Cambodia who were evac out, basically. But to hear their harrowing journey, and the horrific torture that they went through. And so it's that, that whole region and the, the great tragedy that has happened in that region since World War II, the devastation that has happened to families, how they've been ripped apart, how they've been tortured and abused. Um, so trouble if you're kind of in a mood for to understand a little bit more about that region and the conflicts there, Trouble is a very, very interesting, tragic, but heroic and beautiful book as well. I love that.
2: And you know what? I just had this memory come back. At one point, Sarah and I were doing a deep dive into Linda Sue Park, and I read oh. probably all of her books. Mm-hmm. I think I did, or 90% of them. And one of them that would probably be a great read – to read either before Sarah's recommendations or along with or after is the one called When My Name Was Kyoko. Oh. So it's about the resistance or during mm. that time period before World War Two and kind of ending in World War Two mm-hmm. when Korea was under Japanese control. And it's told through the eyes of this little girl who had to change her name to a Japanese name. Mm. So it was when my name was Kyoko that wasn't her name. Mm. And it's it just gives you such a beautiful not beautiful. Right. <laughs> I mean it's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful story. Mm-hmm. It's a arrowing story mm-hmm. but it just gives you a good scope of what that was like and then right i think it ends with the end of world war Two, mm. so then it would lead right into She's like right. sarah's next stories right. yeah
3: but it was so good and it's for young adults yeah i would say these are probably good for 13 14 old enough to
0: handle the heaviness of the theme mm-hmm.
3: yeah. yeah
0: all right diane what have you been reading this month well, we have to tell people that you might not have been reading a lot because we can see, nobody else can see, that you have a wall of bookcases behind you now <laughs> that are
1: filled with gorgeous books. Well, that's true. I'm getting ready to get my library ready to get ready. But I was at least home. So right. so I did yeah. do more reading than the last couple of times when I had to kind of say, um... <laughs> I don't really know what to add to this conversation. <laughs> so I'm going to be a little bit lighter. There's there's a few things that I was going to bring up, but one of them is just that I'm working my way through Gary D. Schmidt as well, and, the, and I read The Sin Eater and Anson's Way, which were his first. Yeah. An, the Sin Eater was his first novel, and Anson's Way was his fourth book, but second novel. And uh, mm. I've reviewed both of those, so we don't have to go all over that. But, um, one comment about those is that with both of them, I think if I had read either one of those first, I yeah. probably wouldn't have gone on.
3: They're okay right. stories,
1: right? But, th- but they're not yeah. really all that special. When I go back and read yes. them now, I can see how his pattern was developing, but the characters aren't really as memorable. Uh, as we have with Hauling Mm -hmm. and and Doug and and the other ones in those books. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and I appreciated a lot. After Sarah brought up last time the interview that she listened to with Gary D. Schmidt, I went and listened to that Mm -hmm. a couple of times and took notes because there's a lot in there to keep in mind when we are reading through all of his books and watching for, what his goals are and where he came from. I just, I think it's fascinating to have a living author like that, that we're working through and be able to hear him say what he was up to and go, Oh, oh, okay. That makes sense. Or I just don't see that. Yeah. But mostly I do see that.
0: What is your take that he was ultimately pretty successful, right?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the main things, one of his main points in that interview is that he says, he's all of his books deal with how does a young person 13 or 14 years old usually turn their face from being a child to being an adult they don't become mm-hmm. adults at the age of 14 but that's when they make that choice or don't he says we all know mm-hmm. lots of people who didn't do that <laughs> but they just
0: never grew up <laughs> yeah
1: when and how do they make that choice to turn toward adulthood and he says it's when each of those makes a decision to act because they believe something and not because their mm-hmm. parents believe something or someone else told them to believe it. And so you can see mm. that in all of his books.
0: And it's interesting because in all the books you and I have read and between the two of us, we've read about 10 Gary D. Schmidt books. We, we've read a f- we've got we've covered a lot of his ground. He always has pretty worthy young people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, when we're putting these books in the hands of our young people, and they're watching these young people turn their faces towards maturity, we're not putting them in the hands of reckless kids who are going to lead our kids astray. I think that's one of the reasons why I like him so much. Our kids are
1: safe in his hands. Yes, that that's a good way to put it. So Marvelous. I don't know that I need to say anything more about that right now.
0: but Although I have to say Anson's Way is not a light book. I mean, it's about the English attempt to exterminate the Irish.
1: So it's still pretty heavy. It is heavy. But it focuses on this English boy who's watching what he, he has always all his life wanted to be in the same um division of the army that his dad is in because that's what their family does. And so far he finally gets to go do that as a drummer boy and sees what's happening and says, this is not right. And he has right. to figure out how do you balance your dreams? The, um, always having wanted to be in the, in the army like that and, and serve your King. He's loyal to the King. He's loyal to his father, who's right. his commander. And then he sees these people being, you know, horrible things happening to them in the name of the king. How do you justify right. that and balance that and decide what your way will be? And that's what it is. In the end, he, he has mm. his way will not be the same way that his fathers have gone. Mm.
0: That's so fascinating. And for our listeners, Diane's review is actually a very exciting review. I enjoyed your review quite a bit. like Just from its own literary value, I enjoyed the way you wrote your review. Oh, thanks. Um, And and it gave me the opportunity to go back and think again about Hedge School by Gloria Whalen, published by Bethlehem Books, which I reviewed years ago. Mm -hmm. I love that book, too. So if you're If you're studying that period in history, these might be really great books to supplement um, that understanding.
1: And I was going to just tell you a story that's a lot lighter than what we've been talking about. (laughs) 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 I always talk about my very first precious, precious book club that I was in. And it's been like Mm -hmm. 25 years ago. So Mm -hmm. I can't tell you a lot of details about these books, but something brought to mind a while back. Um, Have you ever heard of Adrian Plass? No. Okay. He was, he's a, well, he's still alive. He's a British humorist, but also a Christian writer and speaker. And Mm. when we had our book club, one of the members had been missionaries in China. So they, um, this is not a Chinese book, but being over in a different part of the world, we're getting books from different places. And none of us had ever heard of Adrian Plass either. But when it came her turn mm. to pick the book, that's who she picked. And the book was called uh, The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three-fourths. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's just his humorous account – it's not really him, but it is him, you know, it's not a it's no. not really an autobiography, but things that he's taken from life about just the struggles of trying to be a Christian and looking at how Christians are supposed to look and act, and and that doesn't yeah. quite seem right. And I, I don't remember a lot of details, but I do remember this very funny. And the next one that we read was called the um, horizontal epistles of Andromeda Veal and it's her horizontal epistles because she's in the hospital with a broken leg and she oh. and she starts writing to some of the members of her church and again it's so sort of it's you know epistolary but this young girl <laughs> who's writing and the way she sees the world so anyway they were just funny so i was looking for something to put on my kindle as my usual you know wasted reading <laughs> <laughs> And so I was looking through his books and now he's got 30 or 40 or more and I didn't even know where to start. So one of them was called Silver Birches and the other one was called The Shadow Doctor. And they're just weird. <laughs> they're, they're not funny and, and I don't know whether I enjoyed them or not, but just strange experiences. The Silver Birches was about a guy who had recently lost his wife and an old friend of hers gets a whole bunch of their really old friends together from like high school youth group and they spend the weekend together and they're all working through their traumas and things. And I kind of got to the end of went, Oh, okay. <laughs> that was interesting. Oh, that doesn't sound very exciting. <laughs> no. And, and the other one was about a guy who just the shadow doctor goes around meeting people and helping them through emotional traumas and things. So, I'm not. Yeah, that's not as good as what I'm. No, (laughs) I'm not recommending those two books. I'm just saying that that was kind of the rabbit trail that I went on thinking back to these books that I read 25 years ago, and they were so funny. So, if you should decide to read Adrian Plass, start with Adrian Plass, age 37 and three quarters. (laughs) And then maybe stop there just to be safe.
2: (laughs) Yeah, what you're saying is from what you recall his writing hasn't aged like his older works. like go with the earlier works and call it good. Ignore some of the later works. Yeah. Maybe. It's just a different
1: style and flavor than what we are typically drawn to. And they're not bad <laughs> stories. They're just not something I needed. Um, mm. But anyway, <laughs> that, that was just my wasted Kindle at night reading for this month. <laughs> There was one other thing we had mentioned sometime in some discussion. I don't even know where we were, but um Tanya had brought up Bedknobs and Broomsticks and the oh um, yeah. Disney movie, which I vaguely remember liking because it combines the people with the animation. And there, right. I remember like some undersea sequence that was kind of cool. And then my other memory of it is when I was in sixth grade, we moved it, right in the middle of the school year, and that had never happened to me before, is very traumatic. Mm. Oh, and yeah. the teacher in my new school was reading that book, and I thought, "Oh, well, this will be fun," because I had seen that movie, and it's obviously going to be as fun as the movie. And she mispronounced anemone; she called oh. them sea anemones, and I just thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm in oh, the middle no. of idiots. My teacher doesn't <laughs> even know that word." <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and it did not help the rest oh, of my, my school year and I couldn't remember the story at all. But <laughs> I acquired oh, that no. book recently and was reading it just to see what I thought of it. And I can't remember how it compares to the Disney movie because I don't have enough details mm-hmm. of the movie yet. But I was really unimpressed. I was very yeah. sad. Really? Yeah. Because I just didn't yeah. like the approach to magic. Mm. And the fact that the kids have to sneak and lie in order to mm-hmm. spend any time with this woman who's a witch. And and that doesn't get any better. They, um, And it's two books. Bedknob and The Broomstick are two separate books that they put together. Oh. oh. And so in the first one, they want to go to the South Seas to an island and just have a day at the beach and end up among cannibals. And I'm exactly. assuming that that's what Disney decided to turn into their undersea adventure with all the sea creatures <laughs> and things because I don't remember any cannibals.
2: <laughs> it was animals like they go to the sea to another island where there's a lion that's a king and then they have to play it's like soccer or something oh, mm. in the movie okay. And so there's this whole thing and they have to win something or do something, but the king cheats. <laughs> it's like really comical. it's very. Similar of all the same animals that were in Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. But I also thought in the movie, I thought the children got – it's World War II in the movie mm. and the children get sent to her because they're being – the children are being sent out oh, from London. being evacuated. So she, mm. And people are like, can you take these kids? You have this big house. Mm. And she's like, oh, I don't – I what? And then she's like – and then she takes the kids. So mm. it, I thought that was a clever way for her to have the kids. Like it doesn't say that like they were st- – like lying to be with her or anything
0: they got sent to her ah uh, they redeemed it then it, well which is unusual for disney but <laughs> <laughs> well, except right like mary poppins is way better than the book
2: well, yes, yeah maybe Bedknobs and broomsticks is uh, too mm-hmm. because in the end of the movie the nazis invade oh and they fight off the nazis <laughs> Okay, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, It's really great. In the book,
1: they're just they're sent. (laughs) They're sent to live with an aunt in the country because apparently their mom. I don't know where their dad is. They never say. But their mom has to work, so when there's no school, they send them to live with their aunt in the country. And they meet this woman, who the youngest boy has noticed is practicing broomstick flying at night. And so they Mm -hmm. go meet her and start asking questions she doesn't want to tell them what she's up to but she realizes they've seen what she's done and they mm. they sort of bribe her into giving them the bed knob because she's worried she's sitting there going mm, what should i do to you to keep you from telling people that i'm a witch and they're going oh wait, wait wait we won't tell but how about just in case we do you give us a magic charm of some kind and if we tell we don't get to keep it so that's how they get the bed knob, and then they have to figure out
2: this is nothing. Like okay, the movie. so they shouldn't even have named them the well, same there's thing. A bed knob. There's a bed and a knob. Yeah, and so a in the second one, though,
1: in the second half, <laughs> there's time travel. <laughs>
2: <laughs> See how everything comes full circle? Yeah, it does. <laughs> So they
1: go back into oh, it's Weird. 1666 because the kids know that the London fire is about to happen, and. Uh, mm they meet a guy who's a sorcerer and he's been trained by a sorcerer who tells him, I got to tell you, before you take over the business, that magic isn't really real. It's all just, you know, like some of the stories of Merlin where he wasn't really a magician. He was just smart enough to manipulate people and make them think that he was doing certain things. So this guy doesn't believe in magic, but people do. So he's kind of always on the edge of like being caught and burned at the stake or something. Oh. And then, um, so the kids go back and meet him. They bring him back to the present because something, <laughs> and he meets the witch and, and she can really do certain things because her magic is real. And then, so the kids go to take him back and some, and he gets caught and, and, the witch has to rescue him, and in the end, the kids go home, and she goes and marries him, and goes back to the 1600s.
2: I figured it okay. out. I have. I I know the answers to these problems that we're having right now. So, in the movie, there is a gentleman mm-hmm. who is a street magician, mm-hmm. and he can't do real magic. Mm-hmm. And she does have to save him when they go down under the sea and they're having the battle with the lion and he has to win something, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And they do end up falling in love and getting married. But you know who it is? It's the actor who played the dad in Mary Poppins. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. so I think the reason why Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks is better, both of them, than the books is because he was in them. Uh, well, no, he he actually is a very story. compelling actor. He really No, he, he is, is. But yeah. for some reason, he's in both movie adaptations.
0: Of two crappy books, <laughs> wonder if he, but maybe the movie he was part of the, are clearly better. Maybe he was one of Disney's right hands for rewriting stuff.
2: Maybe so, because I might because when we watched it, we watched it within the last year or something, just for fun, and my kids were like, "Oh, hey, it's the dad from mm. Mary Poppins." But so so like, there's elements from the story, but clearly it's completely rewritten. Yeah. So, can I
0: just say, of all the beautiful children's literature that's
1: out there, why would
0: we waste our time on
1: this? And then take something incomplete and yeah, just no. twist it and wring out certain things that are Dis- Disney, Disney, uh, the things that they use over and over yeah. again. Tropes. Yeah, and yeah. Um,
2: but also of all the things you could adapt into a movie, like if you're going to spend millions of dollars adapting something into a movie, like there's a lot of great stories. You would think there. so. Mm-hmm. I don't know how
1: they pick. And it's Mary Norton, you know, she, who Not wrote The Borrowers. I remember liking that. Yeah, no,
0: but, but oh. see, I'm a big fan of the first book of the Borrowers, mm-hmm. and I, oh. You know me, you. I never went
1: on. <laughs> uh-huh, well, let me tell you,
0: one is good, and I banished the others, so ah. I, I got rid of all ah. the others. They get weird, they get boring, they get well,
1: sassy. I was really bored. I I'm Boring? Did I say boring? They're really boring. Okay, because I was bored with Bedknobs and Broomsticks and had a hard time finishing it. I had to... Mm-hmm. Pace myself through it to find out maybe I'm missing something. But it was kind of like Mm-mm. blah, 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 magic, blah, 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 sneak around, blah, 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 blah lie to your parents. um yeah. Oh, golly, really yeah. bad situation. Ta da, we get out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. Okay, so just so we can clarify, according to Wikipedia, okay. you know, is that she had a book called The Magic Bed Knob in 1944. Okay, yes. Then one called Bonfires and Broomsticks in 1947. <laughs> and then so then, then there was an omnibus edition that they called Knob bed bed and broomsticks. broomsticks. Or actually, it's just bed, Knob and Broomsticks. Right, it is. I think we all put the S Well, on the there. movie yeah. has the S. Oh, I think the movie did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the movie did. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Hmm. That's interesting that it's an omnibus. Well, for yeah. For the team. Yeah. <laughs> reading it, so we don't have to. That's great. I do. I take them for the team, and I waste my reading at night. We are a full-service
0: book-reviewing site, friends. We're going to read the stuff you don't want to. Well, or that you're curious about, and you think, is it worth
2: my time? No, no. it's not.
1: But that's what I really had to know because of the vague, vague memories I had of the movie and the book. And you know Disney didn't take the book and make it straight. What did they do? And how well did they do and maybe it really was a better book because there yeah. is no there are no nazis well, and- there's, there's no war going on it's just <laughs> stuff
2: interesting that war made up very interesting because they bring all of they go into this castle and if you remember they bring all the armor oh, to life to, uh-huh. to fight uh-huh. the nazis oh,
0: and then the armor all goes
2: so she awakens it do you remember this and so it's all these, like mickey
0: Moses This armor Fantasia with no too right like animating yes. all the stuff yes, yes. it's Oh, yeah, so.
2: and I think let's not forget that it's Angela Lansbury, right. mm. and I think many of us,
1: right? We we, love, her, we her. love murder so, she wrote, a
0: hundred percent,
1: so much, <laughs> and pretty much any character she did, even if the movie wasn't good, she was good.
2: Yes, absolutely, she was always good, All, and yes, a hundred percent. Which is, I think, I don't even know that any of us would really love the movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks, except that she is so good. Charming. And the actor that I don't know his name, yeah. he's also really good. Yeah. So it's just and then it's a World War II story. So there you go. So, <laughs> so the magic is being used in this good way to help the to allies fight evil. <laughs> and well, it's to too the bad allies. Mary Norton yes, didn't think of that.
1: And and really <laughs> the, the witch in the book is not very good at it. But-
2: <laughs> She's not either. Angela oh, okay. isn't either. She like makes things happen, like she runs a spell. And then it goes all awry. And the kids are like, oh, like, you're not really – she's not – I think it's the little boy that makes comments like, she's not really good, right? <laughs> so it's kind of funny and humorous and it doesn't take itself like too seriously. And in the end of
1: this one, she saves the guy. He's actually tied to the stake and they're getting ready to set the fire. And she sends the – you think that she has flown her broom in to try to cut, to get his ropes loose so he he can get away. But turns out that she was guiding. She had put something on it that would look like it was a robe, I think, just an empty robe on the broom, and she's guiding it. And they don't find out till later that she wasn't actually on it. So that was a pretty amazing trick, but that's about all she can do. And it's not, (laughs) it isn't (laughs) funny. It just happens. Mm. So I kept Mm -hmm. waiting for the good part. Mm, what's one? It never mm-hmm. got there. Mm. <laughs> well, we yeah, know. so I wish I could bring you something encouraging. But... Don't I read suppose. Adrian Plass. Don't read Bed Knob, and Broomstick. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so
0: Diane is really wasting her time right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saving yours.
2: No, re- no reading is ever a
3: waste. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: No reading is ever a waste because now we've all learned. Yes.
3: <laughs>
1: And You're product. welcome. And yes, we I just can't help being a teacher. <laughs> thank
0: you. <laughs> All right, so then let's talk about something that's worth reading, shall we? Because I, yes, thank you, Sarah. Because awesome. of course,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> so, um, I'm I read. Literally, I read like 15 books in the last month. So I'm, I'm not going to overwhelm you with all those details. But I will say since we're speaking of witches and witches who are not actually witches who don't actually aren't actually able to do any real magic. I did read Anne Rinaldi's A Break with Charity, which is about the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a wonderful companion book to put next to Shirley Jackson's The Witchcraft of Salem Village landmark book. I think this is a really compelling book. I I loved it so much more than The Witch of Blackbird Pond or any of those other kinds of books. It's fascinating because Anne Rinaldi likes to write true historical fiction. She likes to put you right in the middle of the action and let you see what's transpiring through the eyes of somebody who was there. And she really did not feel like she could do that with the actual girls who were the accusers. Mm -hmm. She just didn't feel like any of them were sympathetic characters. And she didn't want to do it through the eyes of a victim either, because that would have a less, uh, it would have a more skewed bias. So instead, she found a real girl named Susanna English, whose father, Philip English, was considered gentry because he was a merchant who traded with the English. And so they were always outsiders because they were wealthier than everybody else and because they they had dealings with the English and he was Anglican. He was not interested in the Puritans at all. He thought, even though his wife was a Puritan, he did not think that their overly strict rules were good for anybody. And so he would go across the lake in order to worship with his church, and she would stay with her with their children and worship with the Puritans. Rinaldi's uh, argument is that at this time the Puritan religion really did not allow for a teenagehood at all. Basically you were a child who was being obedient and learning how to work and learning how to worship and then you went from a child to active military service or active work. And if you were a woman, by 22, you were married. And if you were a man, you were married at 27. And you weren't really married earlier than that. And you definitely weren't married later than that. It was just sort of understood that there was like this little window and you were going to get married inside that time. But there was no opportunity for for any kind of entertainment. There was no, you weren't supposed to enjoy your food. You weren't supposed to wear anything of color. Like if you, one of the women who was accused of being a witch and tried as a witch had, I think, a, a red bodice that she wore. So that automatically made her scandalous simply because she liked color. Mm. So she t- lets us See this all unfold through the eyes of Susanna English, who's the same age as these girls. These girls are, because these girls are being raised in an oppressive culture where they're not really allowed to be anything, especially as women, they weren't really allowed to be anything or do anything with long winters and hard rules. They got bored. And from that boredom, they started to go and visit the, one of the slaves who probably was actually practicing witchcraft. Tituba was pro- probably did have some dealings with the devil and witchcraft. And they got whipped up into a frenzy. And this entire bloody massacre happened because a group of teenage girls were in that awkward in-between stage. Bored. Bored. And it's fascinating because Susanna English's parents were accused by the girls, and prosecuted by the magistrate, but Susanna ends up marrying the son of the magistrate, and so that's that's a real life stranger than fiction kind of a twist. And so this story starts with Susanna and her husband already married, going back. This is like several years later. Um, where the women are trying to apologize to the community and be reinstated in the community, the women who had done all these accusings, which were untrue. And her husband is telling her, you need to go. You need to go and be a part of this reconciliation. So it all then becomes a flashback from her memories. It is so well-researched. Almost every single character in this story is true. And the things that happened to them, she has simply just colored in... You know, all the it's like a it's like she took the coloring book of history and she just put color into it. She stayed inside the lines, did very little, a changing of the facts and just brought the whole thing to life. So this is true historical fiction done really, really well. Highly recommend and definitely recommend to a slightly a slightly older reader, probably seventh grade and above. It's witchcraft. So there's that. But there's no like witchcraft that's happening on scene. And because they're Puritans, there's not a whole lot of, like, sexual stuff or anything like that. But it was gripping. I enjoyed it a
3: lot. And I'm excited to read more Anne Rinaldi. It looks like that book is available like included with your Audible membership, if you have an Audible membership. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you listen to the audio book? I did. I listened to the audio and it's excellent. But I have the print book and I really recommend the print book because the back, the author's note, I listened to her read the author's note. But I actually liked to be able to read it with my eyes and study the names and the dates and, and all of that rationale. So I really recommend both. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, that it's it's free with your Audible membership.
2: Well, sorry, I think you said you're going to read more Anne Rinaldi as well. Yes. So we'll be hearing more about her. I just want to share, just to kind of tie on to that, that I read Hang a Thousand Trees with Ribbons, the story of Phyllis Wheatley by her. And the same thing, Mm. everything you just said, it's well-researched. There's not a lot known about Phyllis Wheatley. And so the the author's note tells you exactly what she did and why she did it and um, kind of the background reasons. But it so opened up that story for Mm. me and it was so well-written. I just... I loved it so much. So I've been wanting to read more of her since that was the only one that I have read so far, but I highly recommend it. And again, a little older, 13, yeah. 14 and above, but
0: yeah, still the storytelling is excellent. So compelling. And and she mm-hmm. has a little bit of a modern bias, perhaps, in her writing. I, I I kind of read sort of a modern feminist kind of like energy in it, but... I I don't think that that changes at all what was happening. I think her subjects appealed to her because of those kinds of things. And it seems like she has a lot of books, a number of books, dealing with slavery and the ills of slavery. There seems to be a lot of books that deal with people who either were part of the Underground Railroad or who were abolitionists or worked to bring an end to slavery. So that should be really interesting as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that was a very
0: compelling book I read. I recommend it. And I think it's historically just really interesting. And so I think it it could really be a benefit to moms. And like Sarah said, because it's included in your Audible membership, it's pretty low risk if that's one you wanted to try on for size. But I have another. So this is a Gary D. Schmidt book that I want to highlight. And I want to highlight it for a particular reason. And this one is not available in audio, to the best of my knowledge. I couldn't find it anyway. And if it is, I would love to know about it. But Straw into Gold, which is the Rumpelstiltskin story. I loved this book. First of all, it's his third novel. Comes right after Anson's Way. And you are beginning now to see in this book what we will see in things like The Wednesday Wars. You're seeing that young boys who are 12 years old-ish, 12 or 13-ish, who are needing to make choices, who are out in their own, out in the world on their own. The story goes like this. (laughs) On a cold Michigan night, he and his wife were sitting by the um, cook stove and wondering, why did Rumpelstiltskin want the princeling so badly? Why did he fight so hard? Why was he so insistent? Now, these are questions I would never have asked about Rumpelstiltskin. I don't care. But what ends up happening is he he tells this, he takes the straw of Rumpelstiltskin and turns it into fairy tale gold, as far as I'm concerned. It is a really brilliant fairy tale that he Gives that he gives us. But I want to particularly highlight it for moms, because if you have children who think they want to be writers, if you have some aspiring authors in your groups, in your families, in your homes, this is an excellent book. Or if you're going to be teaching writing, this is an excellent book on perspective. In this story, we take a well-known fairy tale, we look at it from a different point of view and we follow it through. We follow it down the road that it goes and, and come to a very different conclusion than we otherwise would have had. And classic Gary Schmidt, wherever you think it's going, it's not going there. It's actually going somewhere different and it's going to surprise you. And so I think this one would be really, really brilliant in teaching young writers how to take an idea and examine it from another point of view. And build something completely new out of something old and stretch that muscle a little bit. So I think that this one is, has just a, a wonderful educational value. And it's really charming and fun. I have a question. Yes,
2: Because now that he asked the question, of course, we all want to know the answer. Right. Like, that's a great question. And we all love great questions. Right. But it sounds like, and I could be wrong, so I just would like you to clarify Is it similar to other stories where, like Wicked, which I haven't read, but I love Uh, the musical, is it like that or like the Maleficent movie where like here's from Maleficent's perspective or kind of like that? or
0: So, right. So I think that's an important, a very important distinction. This is not one of those, I call it like baptizing bad guys. We're not like turning bad guys into heroes. Although... Rumpelstiltskin comes out smelling like roses at the end of this novel, but he's a very minor character. So this is not his backstory. This is not his tortured existence. Not at all. It's the story of the prince. And what we come to find out is Rumpelstiltskin knows what is necessary for the prince to do what the prince needs to do and could not do if he were raised in the castle. And so it is about the prince. It's about the king. It's about the queen. It's about the kingdom. It's about the evil lords who are amassing power. It is not about Rumpelstiltskin at all. He just happens to be the magic that makes it happen. So it's not a
2: misunderstood Rumpelstiltskin per se. Well, I mean, yes. To a degree, degree. but not like
0: redemption. No, it's not. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you're like... (laughs) I mean, it, 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 he's so yeah. small a character in this story. No yeah. one is going to be forced to think of Rumpelstiltskin differently when this is all said and done. You can honestly yeah. just look at this and say, this isn't Rumpelstiltskin, this is somebody else. Because Rumpelstiltskin was a crotchety, evil little magic man. And this one, no, 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 he was a motivated guy who loved the kingdom and he was actually saving the prince. So it's but but who he is is really not that relevant. Yes, he has a part to play in all of this. No, none of this could have happened were it not for him, but this is not his hero story at all. Interesting. I'm intrigued. It does. Because if it were like maleficent, I'd be like, eh, thanks anyway. Or Diane and I say this about all these fairy tales reimagined. We're just like, eh, tropes. These are just modern tropes, <laughs> just not thrilled at all
1: well and it's aren't i clever turning this completely upside down and making the bad guy the good guy right
0: exactly this is just we have a kingdom in peril and everybody has their part to play and now we're going to find this boy and another boy come of age and there's going to be some twists and there's going to be some turns and there's the learning how to practice virtue and there is, like like mm-hmm. Diane was saying about Gary D. Schmidt, that moment where you can't, that the boy can't rely on Rumpelstiltskin because he's gone. He's not in the middle of the story. He's not in five-eighths of the story. So the boy can't rely on Rumpelstiltskin. He has to do things for himself. And he has to make his own choices about how to deal with the world. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's really very satisfying. So then my big thing that I'm reading. <laughs> Connie Willis wrote five books. Sometimes they're grouped as a three, three books and two standalones, but it's basically five books called the Oxford Time Travel Books. In these books, the year is 2060. And the, the idea is that we have discovered time travel. It is now possible. The problem is time is a closed but chaotic system that protects itself. So you can't change history. You can't go back and kill Hitler before he takes over Germany. You can't go and, and stop the senators from stabbing Julius Caesar. You can't change anything fundamental in history. So, And you can't take anything from the past into the future. So you can't go get gold or precious metals or valuables and bring them to the future and have them. The time doesn't allow for that. The net doesn't allow for any of that. And so because of that, nobody cares. Time travel is irrelevant to anybody except historians because historians can go back and they can have a front row seat to the Blitz or a front row seat to Victorian England or you name the day or the place they can go there and they can study it and because the the net the the system that protects time won't allow them to go at key points where if they were to do something they could tip tip it one way or another anywhere they go they really can't do anything to cause any harm so it's safe so in the I, I n- I've never read the first book Firewatch I understand it's about the Anthony Hopkins type character who who is sort of the, the grandfatherly boss of it all. And then the second book is called Doomsday, and it's the Black Death. And something goes wrong and they get trapped in the Black Death. I finished reading that book the day that all the colleges in our town closed down for COVID. And so, I was just, and in it, I, I go to my friend's house who's teaching my son Latin. And, um, I looked, I looked at Beth and said, I just finished Doomsday and UWGB and St. Norbert College just closed. And she's like, Oh my gosh. And in Doomsday, where they talk about the plague of 2020 when all the cats died. I'm like, It's 2020. It was like March 18th, 2020. (laughs) So I do not recommend doomsday to the average reader. There are lecherous old men in there and they're gross and, you know, they do their part to spread the plague. And so it's, yes, right. This is not a book I recommend for our teenagers unless they just have a really cast iron stomach and you don't, aren't concerned about the dirty old man kind of thing going on. Um, and I think anybody who has survived COVID is probably not that excited about reading Doomsday right now. But then the third book in the series, and and so all of them are standalones. So you can read them in any way you want. The third book is To Say Nothing to the Dog, which is sort of like Jeeves and Wooster and The Importance of Being Earnest all mixed together <laughs> with time travel, it's hilarious. It's a Victorian afternoon and it's based on the story Three Men in a Boat. And um it's just it's very funny, very very fun. We did it as a teen book club uh years ago in my in my old book clubs. Really fun and I will uh, I'll reread that and review that soon so we have that on the site. But I had put off Um, Blackout and All Clear because those two have to be read together and they're each just under 700 pages long. So I just never felt like I was ready to jump into those. But we've been reading all of these World War II books recently and I I just was feeling it. So I was sick and I thought, this is the perfect time. When else am I ever going to have the capacity to sit and read fourteen hundred pages all together, and it's perfect because of the time travel. There's a lot of confusing stuff, like the times are jumping around all the time, and so I thought that's perfect. I've got a fever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the it's tiny wimey, yeah, tiny wimey, exactly. This is very Doctor Who, and so um, I cannot believe how good Blackout and All Clear are. The premise of these. Um, two books, is that three time travelers have been sent back to assignments during World War II. And the net is broken. And their drops, which are the places where their portals, where they travel, their portals won't open. So these people who were supposed to be observing the Blitz for six weeks or were supposed to be at Dover and end up at Dunkirk They're trapped in England, and they they have to um, they have to figure out how to find each other. They have to figure out how to stay alive. They have to figure out like one of them knows what was bombed and when in the raids, so they know where not to get an apartment, which stores not to go to work for. And you can die in the past. So if you get killed in the Blitz, you, you don't get to go home to Oxford. You're still you're just dead. And um, Sherry Early has a really lovely review on her website, and uh, we will link to that. I will say one caution is that there is language in it. The language is always and only used by the character named Michael, and it's always used in the British way, but it is the Lord's name taken in vain quite a bit. So whenever things get really intense, like a Dunkirk or wherever, you're going to hear some of that cussing. And and some, for some families, I know that would be a non-starter. I respect that. But other than that, the, the book is, you know, pretty clean and really exciting. Because as Sherry says in her review, it is not an overtly Christian novel, but it is Christ haunted. You know, like this Lannery O'Connor says, that the South is Christ haunted. These books are Christ haunted. And the idea of virtue and sacrifice are their own very important themes that run through these. Connie Willis says at the very beginning of the books that we've seen a lot of stories about the heroism on the field or the heroism in the trenches and that kind of thing. What we don't have a lot of stories are the heroism of the shop girl who gets up and goes to work every day knowing that she could be bombed. The heroism of the land girl who goes and goes to work every day or the heroism of the all the people that are doing all the normal everyday things or taking care of other people's kids because they've been evacuated and they get the measles and you're under quarantine for four months while everybody at the house gets measles. And so I'm not making this sound very exciting, but it is very exciting. (laughs) So I love, love, love these two books. I was telling Sherry I was reading them, and I think she dropped everything to reread them, which we're talking, again, 1,400 pages. So she must really love them if she's going right back in. I I could see rereading these every couple of years, and I definitely would hand them to my high school students, and I could definitely see doing a book club with them. It would take a long time because you'd have to give kids a chance to read, Um, but they're very fun. (laughs) So and then finally, finally, you and I are both reading. I didn't know. I didn't know you were finishing Lines of Courage this month, Tanya. I know. I didn't tell you. Thanks a lot. Here I am reading Lines of Courage (laughs) all by myself. (laughs) I should have told you.
2: Well, I finished OK for Now. And then I read Hattie. Hattie Big Sky. That's the
0: other thing I read this month.
2: I didn't tell you oh, that. good
0: job. Thanks a lot.
2: And then I finished Lines of Courage. Are you just making and- sure that my
0: book recommendations are solid? You're just going behind <laughs> me.
2: <laughs> I know, right? Every time you're like, here's a book I've just reviewed. I'm like, I'll check that. Yep. Mm, okay, so are you going to read
1: the ones I'm telling you that you shouldn't? <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: You're not wondering See, if I I'm wrong. You, no. <laughs> she trusts you, Diane. She just doesn't trust me. Well, I will
2: probably read Bedknob and Broomstick. Oh, Why? <laughs> well, because I want to know for myself. I want to be able to come back and say, "Okay, Diane." Yeah. Like,
0: yes. You're the person who needs to look at the car accident, right?
1: Well, I no. <laughs> See, that's the funny thing. And we were talking though about <laughs> comparing it to the movie. You know, what does Disney typically yeah. do to a book? And every once in a while, it's better.
2: (laughs) Well, and I think we were also talking about what makes a book worthy enough that someone says, I have an idea. Let's make Mm -hmm. that a movie. And so then we want to know, well, what's the original source that caused that inspiration? And then sometimes we found like with 101 Dalmatians, the original source material was amazing. Amazing. And totally worthy of. Yes. Does, you know, the inspiration to say that that could be adapted in some way. So we would, we hope that the other source materials are as worthy and we're curious. We just, we want to know.
0: But I also. it's that
2: curiosity factor. And I do
0: appreciate if it's a bad book, I appreciate that they said this could have been a really good idea. Let's fix it. I mean, I think that's cool too. Yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah i'm i just the whole idea that bed Nobs, and broomsticks was not set during world war ii is mind-boggling <laughs> to me right now so that's strange but also because UAs are constantly reading and reviewing yes. and i'm constantly adding them to biblio then i'm like and I usually go and find it at the library if it's a modern book, which there's been quite a few We've been going that more way. modern yeah. books, mm-hmm. right? So I'm constantly at my library picking them up, and then I open it up, and I'm like, I'm just going to read a page <laughs> or two. And then it's the Dominoff. <laughs> we're not. So One sorry. Thing leads to another, and Hattie
0: <laughs> – We're not. I know.
2: See? So I read Hattie Big Sky, and I checked out Hattie Ever After. We can talk about that next time. And then I finished Lines of Courage. Maybe we have a whole – episode or something on jennifer nielsen or something <laughs>
0: yes yes so i think lines of courage is way too important and too big a good discussion to have today so we'll come back to that one we do have it reviewed on our website but when diane gets a hold of a copy that's when we're gonna actually want to do a book club for that one at some point it, it but i'll just tell the readers very quickly that it's about five children five teenagers during world war one and you get five different perspectives Russian farm boy, um, Austro-Hungarian, Jewish boy, German girl, French girl, and English girl who's working on the ambulance trains. So it's just a really, really interesting landscape and you're getting the perspective of all these different nations and why they're in the war and what these kids think about that.
2: And I do have to say I learned things I did not know about World War One. I. I did. I was actually, my husband and I take an evening hike every day and I was telling him, have you, did you know this? Or Mm -hmm. there was two specific things. And I said, did you know this? And he was like, I didn't. And and he reads a ton too. And I said, and how about this? And he said, I didn't know that either. So we had a whole World War One discussion (laughs) based off of this middle grade reader book. It was (laughs) so fascinating and so good. And I just want to also say that this one isn't as heavy as some of the other books we've talked about today. You can do this with um, some younger readers. 12-year-olds, 11, 12-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, always depending on the child, right. but it's, um again, it's gruesome. you're aware of what's happening, but it's not graphic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more hopeful. So hopeful and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It This one highlights the parts of humanity that rise yes. in times of it,
0: distress. The best mm-hmm. of each of these nations. Each of these children yes. are an ambassador for the best of their nation, which I loved. Yes. Me too.
1: I wanted to mention a couple more things that Gary D. Schmidt said, and it, it was an interview and yeah. it was part of a talk that he was giving to writers, because I think that he articulated something that makes a, a couple of things that make up the way we judge these books when we're trying to decide, is this a good book? Mm. One of them was, he was quoting Augustine who said that the ultimate judgment of whether writing is worthy or not is does it serve Mm. and i think that's one of the things that maybe we just sort of unconsciously think what was that for yeah it yeah is is there good food in there for our kids we do mention that sometimes but the one of the last things he said was we live in a culture that has chosen not to embrace its children in such a world Ah. the writer had bloody well better and I thought that was really really (gasps) telling exactly because he was he had talked before too about um if if you're writing to be cynical then you're wasting your time yes Sarah
0: said that in the book club Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm.
1: thank you ladies Sarah and Tanya again lovely afternoon with you thanks for being here yeah, thank
0: you for, as always, doing great damage to my to be red pile. <laughs> and th- thank you, Diane, for reading things I don't have to read. I appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome. All of you, you're all welcome. <laughs> Friends, we so enjoy having you come alongside us and read with us and listen in. We really appreciate you listening in today, and we would love to be able to chat with you. So feel free to find us on social media and comment there. Um, but we specifically would like to invite you into the Biblio Guides online community. It's a mighty network. It's totally free. You are most welcome, and we would love to chat with you there. So friends, thanks for being here, and until next time.